Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles once again to the ninth chapter of the book of Joshua. Title of today's message is The Curious Case of the Gibeonites. One of the challenges of preaching through Old Testament books like Joshua, which uh, is in the genre of historical narrative, is the sheer size of the pericopes. Pericope is the section of scripture that you're going to be teaching from. Just reading the text takes several minutes. But I've come to realize over the years, if we do nothing here but read the Bible out loud, it would have been time well spent. Because the Word of God is active and alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. There is no shortage of truth to preach about, and that certainly is the case here in the book of Joshua. I discovered about two weeks into my study of Joshua that I had way too much material to cover in the number of Sundays that I had allotted, um, but we'll do the best we can. It reminded me of uh, the favorite line of my favorite movie, my favorite character said, let me explain, no. There is too much. Let me sum up. And so we're going to be doing a lot of summing up, I think, over the next few weeks. But let's enjoy what the Lord has for us today here in the ninth chapter. I'm not going to read the entire text again. Gregory read it. You followed along. But uh, you'll see in the first two verses, right away there is resistance. Resistance. Last Sunday we left off at the end of chapter 8. God had given the Israelites two great military victories. And in between the victory of Jericho and Ahi, there was a terrible defeat. God had delivered the city of Jericho miraculously and then later the city of Ai providentially, but they were just getting started. There were seven entire nations within the promised land that had to be driven out. And they were going from city to city, inch by inch, claiming the land. And pretty soon, as will happen, the word got out of what was happening. Jericho, this great fortified city, had been defeated, Ai. And uh, those who were next in line certainly began to get nervous. And so the great nations and their leaders got together and they formed alliances to join forces to fight Israel. Look at verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, the lowland on the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight Joshua and with Israel. Now remember, these nations were rivals. They often fought one another, but they realized they had a bigger problem with God's people, so they put away their own disagreements to attack a common enemy, Israel. And friends, things have not changed much today for God's people. Even among many political groups with various agendas, the one group that they collectively seek to silence oftentimes is Christians, God's people. We live in a world, and I would say a nation, that is increasingly hostile to the things of God, and therefore the people of God. And I try to remember what uh, the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, that is persecution, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled, Peter says, for the name of Christ, you are blessed 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now most of the nations and the cities in the promised land chose to resist God. But there was a notable exception, the inhabitants of the city of Gibeon. Now this was a city that was made up of people known as the Hivites. The Hivites, according to Genesis chapter 10, were descended from Noah's son, Ham. They were one of the seven nations that God instructed Joshua to destroy, and they knew that they were on the list to be destroyed, so they hatched a plan to escape. And we find that beginning in verse 3. They submitted. Now when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had gone to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Now when you read this, it's hard not to smile. These guys, the Gibeonites, were as the scripture says, cunning and crafty. Today we might say they're slick. Here's what they did. They recognized that to fight against God was a losing proposition. So they sued for peace. They used trickery because, after all, they were pagan people. And they knew God's instructions were to kill everyone in the land. So here's what they did. They found the oldest garments that they had with holes in them. They found the oldest worn out pairs of shoes they could find. I imagine brought some old broken down donkeys. They found some old moldy bread. And they pretended when they got to where Israel was camped, I'm sure, to be very tired and weary from their journey because they said, we live far away. That is, we're no threat to you. We've just come to make a, a, a treaty with you because we respect you so much. Now, this was a, a very common practice in the ancient world where a weaker nation would submit to a stronger nation and become a vassal state. And in a vassal covenant, what would happen is the stronger state would agree to give military protection to the weaker state, and the weaker state would do something in return. Oftentimes they would give tribute or tax money, or in this case they became servants. Literally the people became the servants of the people of Israel. Now, sort of like Rahab we studied about a few weeks ago, we can question the ethics of the Gibeonites. They, after all, were using uh, cunning or craftiness, another word of saying is lying. But one thing they got right, they knew that it was a fool's errand to resist God. And therefore they did everything in their power to find themselves on His side. And the means they used was a covenant. A covenant. Look at verse 15. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. And it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that there were neighbors and that they were living within their land. Uh-oh. Somebody spilled the beans. These people didn't come from a faraway land. They live right up the road here. You've been tricked. You've been duped, Israel. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to the cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and 
Chephrah and Beeroth and Kiriath Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Now a covenant, as you know, is a sacred promise. And in this case, in which the name of God is invoked as a witness. Well, some of the people thought they'd been tricked into making this covenant, and so it should be null and void, but it was not. Now, the closest thing we have in our society, I suppose, to this sort of covenant is a marriage, where two people come together and they covenant together to be faithful to one another, good times or bad, sickness and health, and uh, richer or poorer, and uh, they call God, their friends, their family members as witnesses. That's what a wedding ceremony is, I hope you know. It's a legal thing in which we're calling God to be a witness to this covenant that you're agreeing to. Well, these leaders understood covenant better than most of the people did, and so they would not violate the covenant. The sons of Israel, verse 18 says, did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. By the way, that uh, word is often rendered murmur. You know what the word murmur is, right? You remember in school when you studied onomatopoeia, which means words that sound like what they are? The buzz of a bee? Murmur, 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 murmur. Murmuring is complaining under your breath, but not loud enough to be understood. They were grumbling and complaining against their leaders. They got us into this covenant. We want to strike these people dead, but we're not allowed to. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. Now this whole scene puts me in mind of something that one of the Israelites' ancestors did. Do you remember Jacob, whose name means trickster, who connived and tricked his brother Esau out of his father Isaac's blessing? And when Esau came in, he cried and whined and said to his father, do you have only one blessing? And he did only have one blessing. He would not go back on the covenant he made to Jacob even when he, know, when he, when he found out that uh, he'd been fooled. Same situation here. And the reason is that God's good name was at stake. Be careful invoking the name of God. Young people, be, care, be careful who you marry. I often say outside of following the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior, the most important decision you will make in your life is who you marry. Now, I hope all of you get married that the Lord would lead you to. I think it's a wonderful thing. But do it thoughtfully and prayerfully. God's name is at stake. Now, the question is, did God honor this covenant? We know that Joshua did. He and the leaders would not let the people violate the covenant. But the question is, did God honor this covenant? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 21. And in 2 Samuel, we find the story of King David. You remember that King David was the second king of Israel. 
The first being King Saul. King Saul started out with good intentions, but he shipwrecked his life through jealousy and other sins. And so David, this young shepherd boy, was appointed king of Israel. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of, of David. For three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord says, it is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. God judged Israel and sent a three-year famine. David asked the Lord why, and God revealed it's because Saul violated this covenant. God was honoring that covenant years and years later. His good name was at stake. And so David had seven of Saul's sons put to death, and God called off the famine. Well, we'll talk more about Gibeon later. The point being that God honored this covenant. Well, the people didn't like, of course, no one does when you've been duped. So the next best thing they could do, since they couldn't kill the Gibeonites, is make them their servants. And so that's what they did. Look at verse 22. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, that is the Gibeonites, saying, Why have you deceived us? <laughs> well, that's a self-evident answer, right? because we did not want to die. And that's what they tell him. We are very far from you and you're living within our land. Now therefore you are cursed and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now, behold, we're in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. Verse 27. Hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and the altar of the Lord. Now just put that away in your mind in a pocket for a second. We'll come back to it. Now Gibeon basically became a vassal city of Israel. For the benefit to them, as we will see next Sunday, is that they came under the military protection of Israel. And because Israel was under the military protection of Almighty God, Gibeon came under the military protection of Almighty God. That's a pretty great benefit. Now the payment was for the rest of their existence they were to be servants. They were to be doing manual labor, chopping wood and drawing water for the congregation and the altar of the Lord. Now there's a wonderful story, isn't it? It's an entertaining story. But as we always say, because we are inerrantist here, it's a true story. This is historical narrative. This actually happened. But there are also some theological and ethical principles that those of us living in the world today, particularly Christians, can take and learn from. Remember why we study the Old Testament? It encourages us to do what is right, and it warns us to avoid the mistakes of the past. And so I want to give you a number of applications today from this story, a couple of them from the perspective of the Israelites, and three of them from the perspective 
of the Gibeonites. First, let's start with the Israelite perspective. And the first one is this. God sometimes uses people less spiritual than you to correct your behavior. Don't you hate it when He does that? When God takes a lost person or a Christian who is not as mature as you perceive yourself to be and corrects some sin in your life. I've told the story before, but it bears repeating. When I was a young pastor, might have even been still in college, I used to hang around other preacher boys. Now I'm an old pastor, I hang around old preacher boys. But uh, we were in our 20s and we thought we knew everything about everything. And we were in a sandwich shop one day, and outside of our window there was a homeless man who appeared to be intoxicated, either on drugs or alcohol. And he was uh, shuffling around, finding trying enough change, and uh, we were guessing what he might do when he got enough money. But to our surprise, he uh, came inside where we were and went straight to the counter and ordered a sandwich, paid for it, sat down at a table just across the room from us, took off his old dirty hat, folded his hands, and prayed. Now, if that weren't enough, we were reminded through his prayer of thanksgiving that we had been so eager to gossip about him that we had failed to offer thanks for our sandwich. The Lord rebuked us through a person we perceived to be less spiritual than we. Well, that's what the Lord does here with Gibeon. Gibeonites were pagans, and yet God used them to point out a glaring sin of the nation of Israel. Well, what is the sin of Israel here? You wouldn't notice it if you read over too quickly, but go back to verse 14 here in Joshua 9. Remember that they came, they pretended to have all this worn out gear, that they, we've come from far away. And so the people had some red flags that went up, you know, maybe they're trying to trick us, but it seems good, so they just went with it. Verse 14, So the men of Israel took some of their provisions, that is, looked them over, their wineskins were worn out, their bread was moldy, and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. There's the sin. They just decided they were going to make this decision without any consultation from the Lord. Now, now this seems hard to believe, because they had just, we thought, learned this lesson a few days earlier. Remember, they defeated Jericho by following the Lord's instructions explicitly. And then they failed to beat this little city of Ai because they failed to follow the Lord's instructions. They, they had sin in the camp. Once that sin was dealt with, now they defeat Ai. And now they come to the third group of people and they go right back to the same problem. They stopped seeking the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with how much of your life? All your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and He will direct your paths. Every situation of life, I take it. Their sin was presumption. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. Now, I said getting married is a big decision in life, one of the biggest. But that's not the only decision in life you need the counsel of the Lord on. We need the counsel of the Lord in every decision of, of life, in the church, in our homes, in our place of business, with our families. But we often make our decisions, even as Christians, only at the sensory level. That is what we see here, smell, taste, and touch. It looks good. Sounds good. Let's go with it. God wants us to come to Him with everything. In all your ways acknowledge Him. All your ways. Not just the big decisions of life, but, but every decision of life. 
Now there's a second application from the perspective of the Israelites, and that is this. God honors His commitments, and so should we. God honors His commitments, and so should we. Christians ought to pay their bills. <laughs> right? Christians ought to pay our bills. We ought to honor our commitments. I had a man years ago who had been coming to church fairly regularly, not here in another church. And I noticed, when we have a church of 40 people, you notice when somebody's not at church. Hadn't been there three or four weeks in a row. Went to see him. I said, what's, what's wrong? He owned a business there in the little town. And he said, Pastor, all I can tell you is it's hard to go to church with people that owe you money. Christians ought to pay their bills. God honors His commitments. We ought to. The obvious application is marriage. From time to time, I will have a husband or wife come to me and say, Pastor, I'm unhappy in my marriage. It's not what I thought it would be. Life hasn't turned out the way I thought. I want out. Well, the Scripture says, honor your marriage covenant. When you stand before God and you're married, you are calling Him to be a witness to the promises you make. Do you remember what some of those promises are? Good times or bad, sickness or health, richness or poverty. The problem is most of us get married when we're young and healthy. And we say those words and we think we mean them. But what we're really thinking is it's going to be wealth rather than poverty. It's going to be health rather than sickness. And when we say we're going to stand by our spouse, sickness or health, really what we're thinking is if she gets the stomach flu, I'll go to the store and get some chicken soup. That's not what it means. Here's what it means. It means if your spouse has a devastating stroke, you will stay beside her and care for her to the day she dies. That's what that promise means. And so, keep your promises in marriage and in the community. That is, this is what I, I think, what I say to people most often in my office who come to me with all sorts of problems, because most of our problems are relational, either marriage or children or work, they're all relational problems. You do what is right, no matter what the other person does. You can't control another person, but you can control how you respond. So if you're in a bad marriage or a bad work situation, you do what is right. No matter what, the, and that's what Joshua determined to do. Look, the Gibeonites, they're pagans, they tricked us. We can't change that, but we're going to honor our covenant promises because the good name of the Lord is at stake. God keeps his commitments, so should we. Now, let me give you three applications from the Gibeonite perspective. First of all, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the scripture says, is the beginning of wisdom. What motivated the Gibeonites to go through such drama to come up with this covenant? It's because they feared the Lord. They said, we know God is said to destroy us and we don't want to come under the wrath of God. So they did whatever was necessary to avoid the wrath of God. Now I know some in this room are thinking right now, well that's not what the fear of the Lord means. I've heard pastors say all my life, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean you're supposed to be afraid of the Lord, we just to have awe in His presence. I have never understood the difference, to be honest with you. I know what they mean by that. 
As Christians, we don't have to fear He's going to strike us dead, but we still need to have reverence for Him. And when you look at the Old Testament, when Isaiah came face to face with God, he was afraid for his life. Went down in the dirt, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell among a people of unclean lips. Paul was the same thing in the New Testament. These people were afraid for their life because they knew it was foolish to resist the Lord. They probably had friends in Jericho who had resisted the Lord and died. And they wanted to learn from those mistakes. Really, we only have two choices when it comes to the Lord's judgment. Either we resist it or we submit. The Lord Jesus called His generation where He performed all those miracles and signs and wonders and yet they steadfastly, stubbornly refused to submit to Him a stiff-necked generation. Like an old draft animal. You, you poke Him in the side, you spank Him on the flanks, and He just digs in His heels. No matter how much pain it causes, they're never going to resist. The Bible calls that man a fool. But these people right away learned from others that God's wrath was upon and they submitted in humility. Look, we'll be your servants, only don't kill us. And I would say to someone here today who's lost, who the wrath of God is upon here today, do whatever is necessary to avoid His wrath. Well, here's the honest truth. There's only one thing that is necessary, and that is to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To give up on everything else you're depending on and come to Him empty-handed and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. That's what is necessary to avoid the wrath of God. Fear the Lord. Those people feared the Lord. Now, here's another thing we learned from the Gibeonites. There is blessing in service. They were enslaved and they had to work hard, but it turned out to be a blessing for them. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, when he described his relationship to Jesus, often referred to himself as a bond slave of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 and 2. Paul says, if you want to refer to us, that is as pastors, apostles, refer to us in two ways. One, as stewards of the mysteries of God, that is managers who manage properly belonging to another, and servants, slaves of the Lord Jesus. That, that's a very specific word. It's an under-rowing galley slave. Now Paul was educated. He was going places in the world before he was saved. He was a bright young man with a promising future. But now once he was saved, he said, this is my description. I'm a slave of Jesus. And he wasn't sad about that. He rejoiced that he got to, to pull on that oar for a little while until the Lord called him home. There's blessing in service. Now, the Gibeonites became servants, but they were blessed servants. Look again at verse 27. I said we'd come back. Now's the time. 927. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. And remember, they enjoyed the Lord's protection as long as they were working for the Israelites, but they also, according to verse 27, got to participate in worship. They were the ones that chopped and hauled the wood that they burned at the altar to make the sacrifices. That means they were up close and personal when the Lord was dealing with the nation of Israel spiritually. Now there's more to it than that. According to the book of First Chronicles, when David set up the tabernacle, and you remember the the temple, the permanent place of worship, wasn't built until Solomon came along. 
And so where they worshiped was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was just a tent. Remember when they were out there in the wilderness, they set up these tents, and that's where the priest did the sacrifices. And, and once they occupied the land, First Chronicles said they set up the tabernacle in guess what city? Gibeon. Gibeon became the place of worship in the nation of Israel. And so these pagan people got to be the ones who participated in God's covenant relationship with his chosen people. Just as Rahab got to be, we saw the ancestor of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. As I read that this week, I could not help but go to Psalm 8410. You know it. Psalm 8410, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I was reminded these are Hivites. The word Hivite is taken from a word that literally means dwellers in tents. I don't know if that's what David had in mind or not when he wrote that, but it may be. He's saying, I would rather, what literally means is to, to lay down and sleep at the threshold of the door of the tabernacle, that is just to, to be close enough to hear what was going on than to dwell among the evil and the wicked. He wanted to be where the Lord was being worshipped. And the Gibeonites got that privilege. They were brought in. They were far away. They were pagan, polytheists. And God used this situation to bring them into relationship. And it is a blessing and a privilege to serve God's people. You deacons know this, right? Isn't it a blessing to serve your widow? You teachers in Sunday school, it is a blessing to serve our children. There's a blessing in, in serving the Lord. Now, there's one more thing we see here before we move on. Most of us in this room, I'm assuming, are Gentiles. People who were outside the covenants and the promises, Paul said. We were far away, but we've been brought near, the Bible says, by the blood of Jesus. The Gibeonites were far outside the covenant promises, but they have been brought near by the mercy of God. And everyone in this room who's born again was born again by the mercy of God. He withheld his judgment and instead poured out grace upon us. As Paul said, he grafted in these wild olive shoots, we Gentile believers, into his covenant tree of Israel. And we get to share in the blessings that are theirs. One more application. School is coming, kids. I hate to tell you, for many of you, this is the week. It will not surprise you that I was not the best student. I did okay. But there were areas in which I really struggled. And we moved around a lot when I was a kid. My dad was a pastor. It seemed like every two or three years we were moving to another state, having to find a whole new set of friends, and could have easily gone a very different direction in my life. <laughs> I have not made a lot of great decisions in my life, but one I made as a very small boy. Every time I moved, here's what I did. When we went to a new school, I found the strongest Christians I could find, and I attached myself to them. I hung around them at lunch, recess, until I guess out of sheer fatigue, they let me into their group. 
And you know, I started doing that when I was probably five, six. I'm still doing that today. That's how I get through life. When I went off to college, I attached myself to the godliest young man I could find, a fifth-year senior, and I was a 17-year-old freshman. He mentored me. I went off to a larger university two years later. I went to the BSU, the Baptist Student Union, and I attached myself to the godliest young men I could find. By the way, they're still my best friends today. Right? I came to this church as a seminary student. I walked into Sunday school class and there was an empty chair next to the pretty girl. (laughs) And I attached myself to that chair. And that girl and I have been married for 15 years. When you go to school, some of you are going off uh, to new school. Some of you college students, freshmen, going off to school. My best advice to you is do like the Gibeonites did. Attach yourself to the people God is blessing. Attach yourself to people who are running hard after the Lord and seeking His will. And do what they do. And you'll find that uh, just by being near them, your life will be blessed. And we're out of time. There's a lot more we could say, but uh, that's enough for today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the curious case of the Gibeonites. Lord, it's a story that's not often heard, but it's a true story. One we need to hear more. It tells us many things about you. One is... You honor your word, and so should we. And another is, Lord, there is blessing in serving God's people. Father, um, I'm moved because uh, you expect us to keep the promises we make. And Father, I know there are some marriages in our church today that are in trouble. And there are people who are contemplating leaving. And I pray today that uh, by your Spirit, you draw them back. And I pray that you would uh, help them to know that the promises they make, you expect them to keep. And Father, that's true not only in marriage, it's true in business, it's true in every area of life. Help us to be people of honesty and integrity. Thank you for Joshua and the good example that he set. But Father, uh, most of all, I pray if there be a lost person among us today, that they would do as the Gibeonites and do whatever is necessary to avoid your wrath because it is surely coming. And Father, we know the only thing they can do is to run to Jesus and sue for peace. Lord, we don't want justice. We want mercy. And so, Father, I pray that every lost soul in this room would ask for your mercy and for your grace made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we know that every true Christian in this room is saved not by works, but by grace. And so I pray, Lord, your spirit would convict souls of sin and judgment and righteousness today, and that many would come to saving faith. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, 
visit us online at fbckeller.org.